Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 269. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today I'm bringing you a conversation that I found absolutely fascinating. I interviewed creativity coach, Dr. Eric Maisel. Eric talks about how to keep your creative juices flowing and how to keep going with any practice that you're trying to make a habit. But to me, it was a lot more interesting than what I just made it sound like. So I hope you will find some nuggets in this conversation, whether you are a creative person or if you don't identify yourself that way. I think creativity shows up in our lives in many different ways. And what he shared in this interview can be useful to anyone. So I hope you'll enjoy it. If you like Therapy Chat, I ask that you go to iTunes and leave a rating and review and hit subscribe if you don't already. When you subscribe, you will receive each new episode as soon as it comes out. It will automatically be downloaded to whatever device you listen to your podcasts on. And it helps Therapy Chat reach more people because it lets Apple know that people are interested. And so they take that with their algorithm and make it available to more people. So thank you so much for your support and talk to you soon. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Eric Maisel, who is a creativity coach prolific author and so much more. So I can't wait to dive into that. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest today. Hi, Laura. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. I can't wait to talk to you. I love talking about creativity. And when I looked at uh, the work you've been doing, you know, just a little bit on what's on your website, I was pretty much blown away about how how much you've done in this arena. So I can't wait to have a conversation. But before we really even start with that, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I started out as a math and science boy. I thought I would be a physicist or an astronomer or one of those things. And when I got to college, that 
stopped interesting me. I was more interested in human things than distant stars. And so I flunked out of college, wasn't interested in school. This was 1965, not a brilliant time to be flunking out of college. And so I enlisted in the army and that's where I spent three years. And when I got out, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I got a degree in philosophy, which is one of those things you do when you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) And I started writing fiction and I wrote fiction in my 20s. I was writing good fiction, but not making enough money. So in my early 30s, I retooled and became a California licensed family therapist. Natural regression. (laughs) Natural regression. Exclusively with creative performing artists, actually creative performing artist couples, which is interesting work. Oh, I bet. But very quickly, really very quickly, stopped believing in the medical model, stopped believing in the current paradigm of diagnosing and treating mental disorders. And so coaching hadn't really begun to be a thing yet. So I segued from therapy into what I called creativity consulting. And then when coaching became a word, then I moved to creativity coaching. And so I've been coaching creative performing artists and other creative folks for probably now going on to 30 years. And over the course of this time, I've written somewhere between 50 and 60 books, maybe 20 of them in, in the arena of creativity, books like Creativity and Depression, Creativity and Anxiety, Creativity and Addiction, all of the th- all of the real things that creative individuals face in their journey as a creative person, whether it's within their own personality as a creative person or the difficulties of the work, because the work is arduous, or difficulties with the marketplace and getting getting their work out there. So between personality, work, and world, those are the kinds of issues I've been working with for the last 30 years. That's so interesting to me, especially when you said about getting their work out in the marketplace, because my mom who's now 84, is is an artist her whole life. And um, she's an amazingly talented artist, but she's never cracked the code of how to really market herself. I mean, she's always been able to sell her work, but it's never been you know, steady enough to be like a reliable source of income and get getting her name out there. And now my daughter's an artist and she's in college for art. And, um, you know, I have that fear for her that she may not because it's not easy. You know, being a creative person doesn't mean you know how to be an entrepreneur or a business person. Uh, Just like being a therapist doesn't mean we know how to. And so it it interests me so much that this is your focus. I I just wish I had found you sooner, honestly. (laughs) Well, it's it's more than not easy. It's super hard. Yeah. I try to be real with my clients and I demand of them that they prove the exception that the rule is is not going to be enough. The rule is that they're not going to make it. Therefore, they have to prove the exception. Lots of lines of work. If you follow the rules, if you're if you do what the person in the next cubicle is doing, you'll be just fine. You'll get your salary at the end of the week or the month. For a creative person, you can't do what the next creative person is doing. You need to do X times that or different things or unique things so as to get your brand known. It would be lovely if we didn't have to do that, but uh, that's what we all, we face it as coaches, we face it as therapists, we have to brand ourselves and not every coach is going to make it, not every therapist is going to make it, and certainly not every creative or performing artist is going to make it. Yeah, but it sounds like what you're doing is really um, helping people, I don't know, I'm intuiting that you're like helping them draw out from within themselves what they need to 
take it over the hump and make it happen. Am I right? Well, without guarantees, I want to be really clear here because it's why so many of the people I work with have to cobble together a life, even if they do many smart things with respect to their centerpiece profession, whether whatever it is, painting or writing, even if they do everything they possibly can, right from the get-go, it may be wise for them to be thinking of other revenue streams, other ways of cobbling a contemporary or current existence together. Maybe they want to start running classes or groups or workshops or retreats or what have you almost right from the beginning rather than waiting till they haven't made enough money for 20 or 30 years and you know are then trying to figure out how to put a life together. So yes, I do try to draw out of them what they need to know for themselves. I also, and, and this is of course subject of my most recent book, the, the Power of Daily Practice. I also make sure they understand that they need to pay attention to whatever they need to pay attention to every single day. They can't every ninth day or every fourteenth day or every seventeenth day think about the marketplace or or get to their work. If a creative person, if let's just use let's just as a writer as an example, so I don't confuse myself. If a writer wants to get her novel written, the second she skips three or four or five days on it, she's typically going to lose weeks, months, and years. It's going to drop right off the table, right off her to-do list. So that's why I really try to sell artists on the idea that they have to attend to their creative work every single day. And if they miss like two days and on the outside three days, they really have to put their butt back in the chair and get back to work or else they're threatened by losing huge amounts of time. That's good to know and kind of compelling. Like you said, your latest book is The Power of Daily Practice, How Creative and Performing Artists and Everyone Else Can Finally Meet Their Goals. And You know, I was saying to you before we started how during this pandemic that stretched on and on almost probably by the time this airs, it will have been a year in the U.S. that people are have been impacted by this. And, you know, of course, there's the health toll, which has been immense and the many losses of life. But even for people who haven't been touched by the illness, the sense of in the beginning of this whole process, people were like, oh, I'll stay home and I'm going to be baking sourdough bread and I'm going to be learning the latest TikTok dances and I'm going to be, you know, getting finally getting caught up on all those things I needed to do with all this, quote, free time that I have. And I was saying to you, even for myself, and I'm hearing this from many people, I've been able to work and function and maintain my relationships as well as I can without being able to spend as much time with people in person. But being able to make myself do things like practice mindfulness daily or exercise regularly or do creative practices has been extremely challenging for me. Yeah. For creative performing artists, for creative folks, this time has been harder than ever, I think. Mm. And I, I think it's harder than ever because they're not getting to their work And so they're extra disappointed for exactly the reasons you just uh, mentioned, that given the amount of time they have, they feel they ought to be doing at least as much as they used to, if not lots more, and they're not, because they can't get their mind quiet enough. We're just all too swirly and chaotic inside right now. And also our everyday to-do list seems to be longer than ever, just checking things off that to-do list. So creative and performing artists, I think, are sadder than ever and more disappointed than ever right at this moment, with exceptions, of course. Some people maybe are doing well, sticking to their guns. 
And so to help those folks, help creative and performing artists think about how to get the work done now, I try to explain to them some of these big high bar ideas about the difference between life purposes and life purpose, that they need to identify their life purpose, that there is no purpose to life. Rather, there are life purpose choices that we make or that we'd better make. If we don't make them, we're not actually living our life purposes. They need to create that, so to speak, list or menu of life purposes to remind themselves of what's important. And of course, their creativity is on that list, but so are other things, activism, career, relationships, whatever it is for a given individual. And they need to start each day thinking about their life purposes rather than that enormous extensive to-do list that's sitting there, which they're going to have to get to soon, but not until they get to think about their life purposes. And I think unless we think about our life purposes in a daily way, we don't stay in contact with them. Those are the things that fall off our to-do list, the big things, like getting our novel written. It's the thing that falls off the to-do list. So one of the things I invite folks to do is to create and then look at in a daily way their life purpose menu or life purposes menu. And the second thing is to help them understand another paradigm shift. There's one paradigm shift from life purpose to life purposes. There's another paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning. And we've been stuck for thousands of years with the metaphor of seeking meaning, be a seeker of meaning, go to the top of a mountain, sit at some guru's feet. And it's an old, tired and incorrect metaphor. We need to get rid of seeking meaning and recognize that we have to coax meaning into existence, that it's a certain kind of psychological experience, like many other kinds of psychological experiences, that being a psychological experience, it comes and goes. We should expect meaning to come and go. And that we have to pay attention to making meaning each day. So between those two high bar ideas of life purposes and making meaning, that's sort of the way I try to orient a creative or performing artist to the tasks in front of them. Rather than it being about writing their novel, it's more about making meaning and living their life purposes. Wow. And can you can you describe or maybe define for us what you mean when you say not life purpose, but life purposes? I mean, I think I think I sort of was getting it when you said, you know, it's not just their creativity, but it could be like activism, career relationships. Is that what you were meaning when you said purposes? To say it more simply, we have to decide what's important to us just to say that more simply. And what's important to us shifts and changes over time. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you you decide that right now your health is what's one of the things that's important to you. And so you want to do X, Y, and Z to improve your health, get over a chronic ailment or what have you. That's a very sensible life purpose, one of your life purposes. But let's say your kid comes to you and says, um, I've got this uh, terrible illness and I need a kidney. Suddenly, your child's life just scooted up that life purposes list and your health now became a little secondary. You're now maybe going to threaten your health by giving a kidney. Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of shifts that happen all the time. And and they're they're quite like earthquakes. It's it's why we experience life as a roller coaster. You know, one day you might be for the war your country's fighting, then you get more information about the war, and then the next day you're against the war your country's fighting. This is how what's important to us changes over time. Yeah. And so we have to catch up with ourselves. Nobody, I don't think anybody out there is feeling like they've caught up with themselves in a long time now. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
we're sort of behind ourselves. But what I invite people to do is to think about this kind of catching up activity of identifying what's important now, not what was important when you were 13 or when you were in your PhD program or what have you, but what's important to you now, including, and this is a kind of work that almost never, no, nobody does, but including identifying what have been the meaningful experiences in your life. Because whatever you've actually experienced is meaningful, that becomes kind of a menu of what might be experienced as meaningful again. To give you a simple example, you may think that your PhD program was meaningful, but when you look back upon it, you realize it was kind of just drudgery and beside the point. <laughs> Whereas you may well realize that holding your kid's hand crossing the street is is 100% meaningful. Mm -hmm. Nothing feels more meaningful than just holding that little person's hand crossing the street. Then when you try to think about what you want to do next to coax meaning into existence, well, your better bet is to hold your kid's hand than to start another PhD, PhD program. To take another simple example, let's say that having that conversation with your Aunt Rose about family secrets was just about the most important conversation you ever had in your life. But you haven't spoken to Aunt Rose in, you know, six months or two years for no particular reason. By remembering how meaningful that conversation was, that adds something to your meaning to-do list for the day, namely give Aunt Rose a ring. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we remember what we've experienced as meaningful so that we can identify what we might want to try today that might coax meaning into existence today. Okay, I see what you're saying there. And is that when you talked about like, instead of waking up in the morning and looking at your to-do list of tasks towards writing your novel, you're making a to-do list for things that are meaningful and relate to your life's purposes? Yeah, prospectively meaningful, because we don't, we never get a guarantee that then when we try something, we'll actually experience it as meaningful. So it, it's more in me, I, I call them meaning investments. We sort of invest in the idea that it might be meaningful, and then we see what transpires. But yeah, to, to, to paint a picture of a day in, in my vision of a day, <laughs> You wake up, you do this kind of little check-in, which could be just half a minute of, you know, which of my life purpose, which of the important things in my life can I get to today? So you identify that for yourself. You know, you say, I'm going to get to my novel today and I'm going to make sure that I spend quality time with my child today, whatever, whatever that list is. Then if you're a creative person, you go directly to your creative work before your, so to speak, real day begins or your other day begins. This is very important for creative folks. Not just that they have a daily practice, but that it's a morning daily practice, that it's the first thing they do. And there, there are three reasons for this, why this is so important for creative folks. The first is the obvious one, that if you were to get to your work every day, seven days a week, you'd get a lot of work done. And that's the obvious one. Less, the other two are a little less obvious. The second is, by turning to your creative work, first thing, you get to make use of your sleep thinking. You get to make use of what your brain has been working on during the night. We dream in REM sleep, but we also think in non-REM sleep. So if a creative person, let's just use a writer again, let's say you're a writer, if you go to bed the night before with what I call a sleep thinking prompt, really just a kind of wonder, like, I wonder what Mary wants to say to John in chapter three, that kind of wonder. I, that thrills me so much that you just said that. I'm sorry. I don't even know why. I'm just telling you. Keep going. <laughs> then, then your brain will work on that. Mary and John will have a conversation throughout the night. And then if you turn to your work first thing, you'll have that experience the writers sometimes have of just 
taking dictation. So creative folks are missing out on about three hours of free creative time, about two 90-minute stints while they're asleep. They're missing out on that by not turning to their work first thing. As soon as you turn to the new day, whatever your sleep thinking was about is gone. It evaporates. As soon as you start thinking about, should I have bran flakes or a bagel or this or that, all that sleep thinking vanishes. So the first reason to have the practice be first thing is that you'll get a lot done. The second is the sleep thinking bit. And the third is existential, and that is by getting to something meaningful first thing, the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. Mm. It's important to get to some real work first rather than getting caught in what I call the maybe trap. That is, maybe I'll get to some creative work later. Maybe I'll get to it. That always turns to no or almost always turns to no. Because by the end of the day, not only are we too tired, but we're also a little bit sad by not having done any real work during the day. So between being tired and sad, we're just not going to get to our novel at 9 p.m. So that's all by way of saying a great way to start a day if you're a creative or performing artist is to take a peek at your life purposes, take a peek at what's important to you, try to identify which of those you're going to get to today. And then go directly to your creative work. I have a ton more to say about this, including how to break through everyday resistance and how to how to leave the work so that you return with strength to the rest of the day, et cetera, et cetera. There's plenty more to say about that. But the headline is wake up and go directly to your work. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm dying to hear more about the additional things you mentioned. But yeah, the this is very resonant for me. And when... I'm thinking of several things about it. One is I know that for myself lately, probably probably since the start of the pandemic, if not before, when I wake up, the first thing I do is look at my phone and then I start reading news headlines. It's like I need to know what's been going on, which often hasn't changed much since it was the last thing I checked before I went to bed. I know it's a very bad habit. And it definitely sets the stage for a day of feeling anxious. Yep. You know? it, it, it's more than a bad habit, I would say. It's really harmful to our emotional health. I mean, there are bad mm-hmm. habits. There are bad habits. <laughs> yeah. And this is a super bad habit because it, it then we organize our day around that. As you say, then we're anxious all day and we're just unsettled and we won't get to our or it's harder to get to our life purposes and our real work if that's the way we start the day. So that was I'm definitely just, coming to mind as I was listening to you. I was like, well, yeah. if the opposite would be true, if it were my life's purpose and purposes and things that are meaningful to me that I was focusing on when I first woke up, then those would be the things that would be on stage for the rest of the day, you know? Yeah. Something we won't get to talk about, I'm sure, but uh, over the last year, I've developed a contemporary philosophy of life I call Kirism, K-I-R-I-S-M. I have a book on that out called Lighting the Way, which came out mid-year of last year. And in Kirism, we talk about a lot of things, but one of the things we talk about is sort of a way to hold all of ethics in a single phrase, and that single phrase is do the next right thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have a ton more to say about it than that. But if you start your day with that kind of language in mind, with that kind of intention in mind of doing the next right thing, you probably won't turn to the news because it's hard to really feel that that's the next right thing to be doing. Yeah. You, you know, so if, if, if one can keep that phrase in mind, at some point, you don't even need the phrase, you're just doing one right thing after another. That's a lovely way to live a life. 
But until you get to that place, you may have to keep saying that to yourself. You may have to keep reminding yourself, well, what's the next right thing? And then by right thing, it doesn't have to be a high bar ethical thing. It could, could be taking a shower. It could be relaxing. Maybe that's the next right thing in your life. But it's you essentially taking a step to the side moment after moment and asking for self-awareness, asking for awareness, demanding of yourself that you appraise the situation and decide what the next right thing is. I think that's the way we, that's the high bar way we all would like to live. That's the way we know it would make us proud to live by doing one next right thing after another. It's hard to get to that place, but I think that's aspirational. I think that's a place we want to get to. Yeah, those words are comforting to me. And when when I'm highly stressed and overwhelmed, asking myself, what's the next right thing helps me. But I don't tend to turn toward that just as a way of you know, moving through each day. And you know, when I describe this, I'm thinking, this isn't how it always is. This is how it's been during the time that we've been under this, to me, what has been extreme stress of the pandemic and so much unrest in our country, so much uncertainty and fear, you know, so that definitely shows up even in what I'm talking about with this checking the news every every morning. You know, my clients know that I would not if they told me that that was what they were doing, I would say, is that helping you? You know, let's think about that. And so I know that, too, for myself. And you're right. It's more than a bad habit. Yeah. And uh, just to sort of go sideways a little bit, we've been talking essentially about a creativity practice. Mm -hmm. In in The Power of Daily Practice, I talk about many, many different kinds of practices, maybe 20 different kinds of practices. In fact, of course, there's an infinite number. You can frame anything as a practice. But I wanted to mention here that in, in keeping with what you were just saying and what people are experiencing, another wonderful practice to institute in addition to creativity practice is a healing practice. That is to set aside a certain amount of time. It can be three minutes or an hour or whatever it is, but to, to mindfully and intentionally set aside time for a healing practice, comma, because, for all the obvious reasons, but because the consequences of early trauma and early adverse uh, childhood experiences are lifelong. The consequences are lifelong. They get baked in. We know that. Yep. I'm going to say a complicated sentence here, but I, th I think folks can get it. And that is, I have a vision of personality is made up of three parts. Original personality, namely how we come into the world already, our endowments and proclivities. Psychology doesn't address original personality at all, sort of does it makes believe that there is no such thing. But we all know if we've had kittens or puppies or kids, we know that every creature comes into the world itself already. Mm -hmm. So there's original personality, then there's formed personality. That's the baked personality. That's the way we stiffen over time. And then there's what I call available personality. That's our remaining freedom to be the person that we would like to be. So I see a healing practice as the way in which we make use of our available personality to change our formed personality. And in my language, upgrade our formed personality, because all of us kind of need that upgrading. We all have the kinds of places where, you know, we still have trouble making choices or we're not confident enough or we have trouble speaking our truth or we still pick an abusive mate or whatever it is, we're still living the consequences of early trauma. One particular early trauma that I focus on are authoritarians in the family, family authoritarians. 
for folks who know the authoritarian literature, the authoritarian personality is an idea that grew up in the 1950s in, in the aftermath of World War II. And it had to do, of course, with the political arena. And the question that those writers were trying to address, those researchers, Adorno is the name associated with it the most, what they were trying to figure out was why did all those folks follow Hitler? Not who Hitler was. We know how Hitler's come to be. But how do so many tens of millions of people follow a Hitler? And so that's where the authoritarian literature grew out of, and a picture of the authoritarian personality got created. But authoritarians in the family has been a kind of secret place, bullies in the family. And so that's one of the areas I write in, and that interests me the most, and the lifelong consequences of there being bullies in the family. And just to say, is this is sort of out of <laughs> left field, but I, I do want to say it for any for any folks who are listening who have had the experience of a bullying father, mother, sibling, grandfather, uncle, coach, boss, coworker, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing that really seems to work is getting the heck away, actual physical distance. That seems to work the best or is or is the number one thing to try to deal with an authority, if there's still an authoritarian in the family, to not necessarily come home for Thanksgiving. Well, nowadays we don't have to worry about coming home, but you know what I mean. So this is all by way of saying part of one's day needs to be reflective and retroactive. So it needs to be looking at we have to we have the work to do today for the future. But we also have the work to do today that that deals with those lifelong consequences of the traumas we've experienced. That's so, so, so true. And that experience of an authoritarian in the family, as you said, you know, just in the same way that people followed Hitler, there's a consequence of the wars of, a, of the 20th century and, of course, before that, too. But, you know, generationally, how people behaved in response to those extreme circumstances and the trauma that those who were in the wars and those who were at home experienced and how it comes into the family, you know, that yep. like you can, you can go fight in war and you can be a general and command everyone to do X, Y, and Z and they'll do it. But when you come home and you try to be a parent like that, <laughs> it doesn't go the same because the no, little humans don't respond well. Alan, there's, there's too much cruelty and punishing energy at the base of that. There's yes. A lot, a lot of hatred in, in a lot of people. It seems to me that a distinction is made in the, in the authoritarian literature between authoritarian leaders and authoritarian followers. I think it's a little bit of a false distinction in the, in the sense that I think that authoritarian followers are actually just pint-sized authoritarian leaders. They just don't have their own followers. <laughs> so they, they look good outside in the world often. They, you know, they're perfectly friendly and they have, they have lots of friends and they're personable and this and that. And behind closed doors, they are real authoritarians. They're really cruel and punishing. It's a kind of secret place because they look so good out in the world and because the the kids are not going to do any reporting of this as kids and as adults, they're still not sure that they want to really tell on their parents. There's still a place of whether it's guilt or confusion or uncertainty that they really experienced what they experienced. A whole slew of, of thoughts and emotions continue throughout life that prevent that person who was bullied from ever sufficiently speaking out loud. I guess 
guess that's all by way of saying I hope folks who have had that experience understand that speaking up is really important, even if it's only in your own journal, but speaking up more generally is one of those um, healing activities that make a difference. So that's a beautiful segue there because I wanted to ask you a little more about really what are some of those healing practices? So it sounds like journaling is one that you're talking about. Journaling is, of course, one. A mindfulness meditation or mindfulness more generally is another. I think I want to say this in a sort of odd way, and that is, I wish I wish we had some <laughs> visual here because I'm holding up my hands. <sighs> we get a certain heaviness in life around hatred and darkness and what have you, and we need to, we need to bring the love. Love is not automatic. We need to bring the love, and what my hands are doing is is the love is balancing out the darkness that we experience in our lives. And there are all kinds of synonyms, synonyms and cognates related to love, like enthusiasm, interest, curiosity. All of those are healing things. All of these synonyms of love, like passion, curiosity, interest, are healing practices. It's one of the reasons that creative people create is that it is a healing practice for them. And even if you're not a creative person, still being enthusiastic being affirmative, giving life a thumbs up, even if you have abundant reasons for not believing that life deserves a thumbs up. These are activities and actions we have to take. We have to decide that we matter and that what we do matters, that our efforts matter. And we have to, what I call don the mantle of meaning maker, we have to put it on our own shoulders that we're going to make meaning from here on in. And all of those parts about life purposes and meaning and mattering, all of those to my mind are healing practices. Okay. That that brings me back to, I think, what I wanted to ask you a few minutes back about the difference between seeking meaning and making meaning. I mean, obviously, there's some level of it being self-explanatory in just the words, but can you go into that a little more about, you know, when you just said donning the mantle of meaning maker? The big headline is that meaning isn't out there somewhere. People get confused about this. They think that they need to go find meaning because it's out there somewhere. But it's merely, and merely in quotation marks, because it's a very important experience, but it's merely a psychological experience like joy or hatred. It's a peculiar one, but that's what it is, a psychological experience. A, that means it comes and goes. B, that means that it's an infinite resource. You can always have more meaning because it can bubble up. You can have the psychological experience of meaning two minutes from now, even if you're not feeling like life is meaningful right this second, because it comes and goes like that. So it's on our shoulders to do two things, seize meaning opportunities. That is, if something feels prospectively like it might be meaningful to try, try it, and to make meaning investments. That is to do the work that we suspect will provoke the experience of meaning. A big headline, and this is one of the reasons that creative and performing artists have such a hard time of it, and they don't, they don't know the following thing. They don't quite realize that work in the service of meaning making may not feel meaningful as they do it. What do I mean by that? You may be exactly, abundantly, 100% clear that writing your novel is what you mean to do. It's one of your life purposes, and that is ultimately meaningful. But on any given day, slogging through the writing may not feel meaningful. 
may just feel like drudgery and you may be doubting why you're doing it. And you may wonder if it will ever feel meaningful. Well, imagine that you have 30 or 60 or 90 consecutive days that don't feel meaningful. Most people are going to stop. And what they're going to say to themselves is a very straightforward sentence. It's the wrong sentence, but they're going to say, this isn't very meaningful. And that's the wrong sentence. What they should be saying, if they can <laughs> remember this admonition is, wow, I'm not getting the experience of meaning from this, but I am living one of my life purposes today. And what I'm doing today is in the service of meaning. If they can remember this distinction between something feeling meaningful versus being in the service of meaning, then they can get through one sloggy day of work after another sloggy day of work. Most people flee that encounter because it's not feeling meaningful and it's making them anxious and they ultimately don't get their work done. And so I hope people can make that change and understand that the work is there for them to do whether or not they're getting the experience of meaning from doing it. That's very thought provoking. I know that was a mouthful. I understand it was a mouthful, <laughs> but uh, it was a mouthful. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, what I pictured when you were saying that is someone who's, you know, feeling like they're making themselves work on something because they're trying to achieve a goal, whether it's writing a novel or, you know, being a successful professional artist or, you know, being self-supporting as an artist is what I'm thinking about when I referenced my family before. But in the moment, you know, they might not like what comes out. They not might not think that this is it, you know, and it might feel like they're critical of themselves or they're feeling perfectionistic about it. And so they're yep. like, ah. Yeah. Plus, I've got to add this, throw this into the mix. It's another hour discussion. I'll say it in 30 seconds flat. <laughs> Anxiety threads through the creative process. It just does. Why? Because creating is essentially making one choice after another. Send my character here, send my character there, put the comma in, take the comma out. Creating is one choice after another and choosing provokes anxiety. The activity of choosing provokes anxiety. That's why so many would-be creative folks flee the encounter because they don't want to have to make not just several choices, but an endless number of choices, one after the other, till, till the end of time. Who wants to do that? Well, that's the, that's the task. We have to sit there and now put the red here or not, and put the blue there or not, and then live with the consequences. Mm. And all of that choosing provokes anxiety. And as I say, sometimes a person will get there and manage the anxiety for a little while. And then here comes a choice point, what nowadays everyone's calling an inflection point, I think. <laughs> here comes an inflection point. We have to send your character to Barcelona or Paris, and you're just not up for making that choice. And so you leave the novel, not for two minutes and make air pop popcorn, but you leave the novel for six months. We have to keep reminding ourselves the extent to which anxiety threads through the process, comma, which must mean that we need to acquire some good portable anxiety management tools that work right in that moment. Some people have anxiety management tools that work when they're using them, like their meditation practice may calm them, but that's not the moment when you need to be calm if you're facing your novel. When you're facing your novel, that's the moment when you need to be calm. So every creative person needs more anxiety management tools than they probably now have in their repertoire. Hmm, that makes sense. And is that... Is that part of what you offer and cover in your books? Well, I have a whole book on this subject, Mastering Creative Anxiety, also another book on performance anxiety. So anxiety to me is important enough that it warranted a whole book. 
And in that book, I think I have 20 categories of anxiety management strategies. And of course, no one's going to acquire 20 categories, but that there are so many is good news because that means there's going to be something that works for you. Mm-hmm. Some cognitive strategy, some breathing strategy, some disidentification strategy, some discharge technique, some this, some that. You'll find something that where everyone can find something that reduces their experience of anxiety. This is absolutely fascinating. And you've mentioned three of your many, 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 many books, um, which I know I'm going to go and purchase all three as soon as we finish talking, but also um, and, and give them to people and keep for myself. But so we know that you're the author of 50 to 60 books, but I know that as a creativity coach, you do more than your writing. Can you, as we wrap up our conversation for now, and I hope we might be able to continue in a part two in the future, but for now, sure. can, can you tell people what you offer, you know, in addition to your books? Well, I train creativity coaches in trainings that commence every February, June, and September, 16-week online trainings. So I do that. I train creativity coaches. I run support groups for creativity coaches. I run three-month get-your-book-written books uh, groups for writers. And I run weekend deep writing workshops also online. I used to run week-long deep writing workshops all over the world, Paris, Prague, Dublin, here, there, and the other place. Those aren't happening right now, but there are the online substitute workshops happening. Currently, I'm running a group called Heal the Authoritarian Wound Through Writing. And this is a a group of brave folks who are looking at their traumatic experiences and doing some healing via journaling and some focused writing. What else? Uh, Probably, you know, 19 other things. But those are are the (laughs) ones that come to mind at this second. The headline would be to visit my site, ericmaisel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. And uh, see what's cooking. Wonderful. And I will actually, of course, um, share your website in the notes for this episode in case anybody missed the spelling. I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk with me today. This has been really interesting. And, you know, it's I think a creative part of me is wanting more attention. I've known that. And um, as I hear you talking about it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to get into that more. So Thank you so much. I, I loved this conversation and I do hope we can we can maybe bring you back if, if that works out. Absolutely. We have to talk about uh, mental disorder nomenclature and all of that stuff, too. Oh, I'm right there. Other stuff to talk about. But thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com.
Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. 